I, uh, I heard an amazing interview uh, on the radio this week. Actually, it was on NPR. So just to get it out in the open, yes, I listen to NPR. No, I don't contribute. Yes, that makes me a freeloader. So I heard this interview on NPR with a guy named Wes Moore, who has this incredibly fascinating story. Wes grew up in this uh, really tough neighborhood just outside of Baltimore. He said by the time he was eight or nine, he was already on like academic probation at his school and uh, arrested by the time he was 11. That was the first time he was arrested. He was 11 years old, grade six. And really for all, from all intents and purposes, looked like a life that was headed into the ditch. And then through the intervention of people who just decided that they were gonna take responsibility for Wes. His life began to be rerouted until one day he graduated from Johns Hopkins University, actually became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford in England, um, served in Afghanistan, became an intern at the White House and a banker on Wall Street. The reason Wes has been writing this book is all this happened before Wes was 30 or something crazy like that. And the reason he, he was writing this book, that's why he was being interviewed. And the book was entitled Work, My Search for a Life That Matters. It's interesting because as part of the interview, uh, the interviewer asked him the secret to a life that matters. And Wes said, my grandfather gave it to me in a question that he asked me once. He said, Wes, he said, you want to live the life that matters. It comes in the answer to this question. Who are you willing to stand for? Who are you willing to stand for? And Wes said, I have lived by that motto of of my life is going to matter depending on who I'm going to stand for. That if my great joy can intersect with the world's great pain. That's where I'm going to live a life that matters. And you know what? Wes's grandfather was a pastor. His father was a pastor. Wes seems like a person of faith. And I don't think Jesus could agree any more with that sentiment. This is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, that um, Jesus overwhelmed, emotionally devastated by uh, uh, the amount of need and pain that he saw in the world. Jesus turns to his disciples, 12 Ordinary guys, screwed up, messed up, normal, immature, regular, ordinary guys, just like us. He turns to his 12 disciples, which the word just means apprentices or interns, and he sends them out on this critical mission of bringing the healing love of God to a world in pain. He sends them out uh, to tell people that God's love is breaking into the world, bringing healing and hope and making everything new. And not just to talk about the love of God, but to be an agent of the healing love of God in people's lives, to bring healing to their relationships with God so that they can feel what it's like to be loved by God and to love God in return so that they can feel what it's like to love themselves and experience healing in their soul so they can feel what it's like to love each other and live in healthy relationships. They can feel what it's like to love the world and to be bringers of hope rather than despair to the future. Jesus sends his disciples into the world and he says, I want you to be me to a world in pain. That's how you're going to live a life that matters. We talked last week 
about how this is the calling that Jesus has put on our lives as well. As ordinary, regular people to go out and in small ways, probably small ways more than big, to be Jesus to a world in pain. That is the mission. That's the calling that he's put on our lives. And the question is, are we going to follow the call of Jesus? And the question that drives the whole rest of this text and the whole rest of the series, these last four weeks of the series is, what does it do to our lives if we say, yes, I am going to follow the call of Jesus? How does living for the, the critical mission of Jesus Christ affect the way that I live my regular life? That's the question that drives the whole rest of this series, because the whole rest of the text in Matthew chapter 10 that we're going to look at is a series of instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples to tell them about how they are to live in light of the mission that he sent them on. And what we're going to do for the rest of the series is examine these instructions one by one and ask ourselves, what difference does that make to us? And so here's the first instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples who are going to live a life on mission. It comes in Matthew chapter 10 starting in verse nine, where it says this. He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Jesus says, here's, here's my first instruction for a life lived on mission. Travel light. See, he's sending these guys out literally to physically wander the countryside in Israel, telling people about the love of God and then bringing the healing love of God to bear on the brokenness of people's lives. They're literally going out on a trip. And Jesus says, as you go, he says, leave your wallets at home. So don't pack a money belt. You don't need gold, which is the currency of the wealthy. You don't need silver, which is the currency of the middle class. You don't need copper, which is the currency of the poor. He says, don't stuff a money belt full of traveler's checks and, and cash and spare change and so on. He says, leave all that stuff at home. You don't need money to live on mission. In fact, he goes even a step further. He says, don't even pack a carry-on. He says, don't bring an extra shirt. Don't bring extra shoes. Nothing. I find it funny. Krista and I go overnight to Toronto. It takes us two suitcases to do an, an overnight trip. I don't know how long these disciples were going for. Weeks, months, maybe. Jesus says, don't even pack a bag. Don't even carry a duffel bag. No extra shirt, no extra shoes. If something gets lost or stolen or ruined or whatever, you gotta figure it out as you go. Don't bring anything with you. Make absolutely no preparations for the mission that I've called you on because, and this is the point, because, he says, the worker is worth his keep. He's playing off the metaphor that uh, Matthew introduced it in chapter 9 at the end when Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. The metaphor works like this. The harvest field is the world. And the harvest is the amount of need and brokenness and pain that Jesus sees in the world. And God is the master of the harvest. He's the one who owns the field and he's the one who's interested in the harvest and the workers are you and me. We're the ones, the followers of Jesus, we're the ones that God sends into the world to bring his healing love into contact with the pain and brokenness of the world. And Jesus says this, if you're gonna be a worker, 
In the harvest field, you just have to trust that the boss is going to make sure that you get paid because a worker is worth his keep. A worker who's out in the harvest field doing the work of the mission of bringing the love of Jesus into contact with the pain of the world, that kind of worker is worth every penny and God is going to make take care to make sure that she's taken care of. A worker is worth his keep. See, Jesus was addressing the primary objection that the disciples would have had to him sending them out on this mission. He was saying, you know, leave everything behind and go. And what are they going to say? The same thing you and I would say. Are you serious, Jesus? I got a job. I got a wife. I got kids. I got mouths to feed and bodies to clothe. And, uh, you know, I, I have financial responsibilities that I have to think about. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Because if you worry about the mission, God will worry about you. If you commit to worrying about the mission, God will commit to worrying about you. This is Jesus' point. That God's business is to take care of the people who are taking care of God's business. The worker is worth his keep. Jesus says, you go out on the mission And don't worry about the financial implications. Don't let that be the deciding factor about how you're going to go. Don't worry about the money. You, You live your life on mission and God will take care of you says you got to go it's what he's talking about is a spirit of dependence of trusting that God will take care of those who make their primary concern the mission that Jesus is sending them on because he says God will take care and then he tells them how God will take care of them he says in verse 11 he says whatever town or village you enter search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave and as you enter the home give it your greeting and if the home is deserving Let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. We had, uh, some of us, a bit of a debate on what that means to let your peace rest on a home and, uh, and, and if the home is undeserving to let your peace return to you. Um, <laughs> I had some friends over at my house, Tom Lowen, uh, one of our worship leaders was one of them. And as he was leaving the house, he stopped at the door because we were talking about this passage. He stopped at the door and he said, um, I'd like my peace back, please. He said, I just don't feel like you're a deserving home. I, I just want my peace back before I go. <laughs> I looked at Tom and said, I didn't want your crappy peace anyway. I got three of them upstairs. I was going to throw it in the garbage the second you left. You could have it. So <laughs> I, we, we don't have time to talk about what that phrase means. But what Jesus' point is this. He says, when you go into a town, because this is what they're doing. They're literally traveling from town to town, up and down that dial. 70s joke. Um, they're traveling from town to town, village to village. And Jesus says, when you arrive in a new place, here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to engage in a careful, exhaustive search to find somebody who's worthy. And what I take it by the text, what I take it that Jesus means by worthy is somebody who is open and receptive to what God is doing through you because of Jesus Christ. That's, That's what the word worthy means. He says, find somebody who's worthy, and accept their hospitality. That's how God's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about the money. You don't have to pack extra stuff because God is going to take care of you through the generosity of people that you meet along the way. See, in the ancient world, hospitality was an art. Um, 
there were inns in the ancient world, hotels and motels and so on, but they were terribly expensive and they were terribly dangerous. They were the kind of place where all the worst sorts of people stayed. And so most travelers did whatever they could to avoid ending up staying in an inn. What they did instead is they relied on the generosity of friends, relatives, or friends of friends, or perfect strangers who would invite you into their home and extend to you hospitality. And the rules of hospitality were very strict. You had to put in front of people more food than they could possibly eat, more food than you could possibly afford. You have to invite people into the most comfortable place in your home, offer them the most comfortable bed, invite them into your conversation, into the socializing that goes on in your home, make them feel like they're part of your family. In fact, throw a party for them to let them know how honored you are that they would stay in your home. And then before they leave, you are to lavish upon them everything that they need for the next leg of the journey. And you don't just do this for friends and relatives. You do this for anyone and everyone. In fact, in Greek, the word hospitality literally translated is the love of a stranger. Jesus says, what I want you to do when you get into a new place is I want you to accept whatever hospitality somebody extends to you. And and. The way you're supposed to choose where you're going to stay is you find a person who's worthy. I find it interesting that when you're picking a place to stay, the emphasis is not on the place, but the person. The emphasis is not on the house, but the host. So if you have a host who's open and receptive to what God is doing through you because of Jesus... Then Jesus says, even if they are staying in a run-down, roach-infested, one-bedroom apartment, you stay with them. You be content with whatever it is that God provides. And don't seek to upgrade your living arrangements. That's what he means when he says, stay there until you leave the town. That's your place to stay. Don't waste time looking for somewhere better. Don't waste time looking for somewhere more comfortable. Don't waste your time looking for somewhere where there's better food. Don't waste your time looking for somewhere where there's better conversation, where there's someone you click with better. Don't waste your time trying to upgrade your situation. Be content with what God has provided and stay there until you're done your job in that particular town of being Jesus to a world in pain. Jesus sends them out on the mission and says these two principles are gonna govern how you go. You're gonna live in dependence on me to provide and you're gonna live in contentment with whatever I provide. That's what it looks like to live on mission. Well, what does that mean for us? You know, how... Most of us, I imagine, Jesus is not going to call to leave our homes and our families and our jobs for a month at a time to wander around the countryside telling people about the love of God. I, I don't imagine too many of us are being called in that direction. So what do we do with a passage like this? What do the 2,000-year-old travel habits of Jesus' disciples have to do with us? I think there's two things. The first is this. The first lesson that I take from this is that living on mission means making a choice to care about Jesus' mission more than I care about my money. 
Living on mission means caring about the mission more than I care about my money. Because the truth of the matter is that you cannot live a life caring about the mission of Jesus if you care about your money. Those two things are impossible to reconcile. In fact, Jesus says as much a few chapters earlier in Matthew. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus would say, if your intention is to live your life on the mission that Jesus is sending you out into, to be Jesus in a world, to Jesus to a world in pain, if your intention is to be motivated to get out of bed every day to be the healing love of God in a world that is hurting, that you cannot live with that sort of intentionality on mission and care about money at the same time. You just can't do it. You will either care about the mission and treat the money as secondary, or you will care about your money and treat the mission as secondary, but you can't do both. You have to choose. You have to decide what it is that's going to get you out of bed in the morning. You have to decide what you're going to care about the most. Are you going to live for the mission or are you going to live for the money? Are you going to spend your life trying to earn more, have more, build a more comfortable home, provide more opportunities for your kids, save more for retirement, go on more and nicer vacations? Are you going to live your life for more or are you going to live your life for mission? Are you going to care about the money and try and squeeze a little mission on the side or are you going to care about the mission and let God surprise you with how he takes care of you and the money? Now, I know what some people are thinking because I thought it and I said it too. I was talking about this passage uh, with Chris Fowler's wife, Bonnie, and I said to Bonnie, people are gonna hear this and they're gonna say, that's irresponsible. And Bonnie looked at me and she said, that only depends on what you think you're responsible for. See, if your primary responsibility in life is to make sure that you are financially sound or fiscally sound and financially secure, then it is irresponsible to not care about the money. But if your primary responsibility is to be Jesus to a world in pain, then it would be irresponsible to not prioritize the mission ahead of everything else. And hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't care about your money, don't pay attention to how much you spend, don't have a budget, don't pay down your debt, don't save for retirement. We'll talk about some of that in a minute, but... I'm not saying don't care. I'm just saying your primary responsibility is the mission, not the money. And God will sort out how all the money side works out in the end because the worker is worth his wages. You worry about the mission and you let God worry about you. We have to choose. And choosing means you have to live according to exactly the same principles that Jesus put in front of his disciples. You have to live with a financial mindset that matches exactly what Jesus was telling his disciples to do in this passage, which is to live according to the principle of contentment and dependence. What does that mean? I'll give you the world's shortest financial seminar oversimplified and all of that, but here it is. There's only three things that you can do with money. Did you know that? With the money you have. There's only three things that you can do with the money you have. 
First thing is you can spend it, which is pretty much the same thing as saying you can use your money to get more stuff for you. Now, there's obviously lots of subcategories, and one of the subcategories under spend would be pay down debt, but debt is simply when we bought something for ourselves even though we didn't have the money, right? This whole spend category is using money to acquire more things for yourself. It's the first thing you can do is you can spend it. The second thing you do is save it, right? Which is just another way of saying to store up your money so that you can get more stuff for yourself later. Spending it is getting more stuff for yourself now, Saving it is about getting more stuff for yourself later. So you can spend your money on you. You can save your money for you. Or the third thing you can do with your money is you can use it. You can use it not for you, but to love God and to love people. Right? You can use it for the purpose of generosity. And the way the Bible describes that category of using your money to love God and love people, there's generally two ways to do that. Number one, the Bible says that that part of using your money to love God and people is giving, and giving to the local church. And the Bible says the gold standard for giving is 10% of your income. That's what we believe as a church, that God has called us to a gold standard of giving 10% of our income to the local church. That's what we do in our household, that's what our staff is committed to, and that's what we're doing when we're passing the bags. We're inviting people to live up to the calling of God of giving 10% back to the local church for two reasons. Number one, as an act of faith, to say, God, I trust that you'll continue to provide for me, and just to prove it, I'll live off of 90% of my income instead of 100%, and I'll let you fill in the gaps of what I need. The second reason is communal. It's so that we together, pooling our resources, can do more as a community than any one of us could do on our own to meet the hurt and the need of the world. And I'm not saying this because I want your money. If you don't trust us to spend your money, go give your 10% to another local church. And then send me an email about why you don't trust us to spend your money so we can talk about it. The whole point is not that we want your money. The whole point is that God wants your heart. God wants you in an act of faith and love to be giving 10% of your income so that the need of the world can be met through the church. That's the first thing. The second thing is to leverage the other 90% of your income to be Jesus to a world in pain to leverage the other 90% of your income, to spend whatever money you have to spend in order to nurture relationships and friendships with people who are far from God, to spend whatever money you have to spend to be able to walk with somebody through the personal, physical, or emotional, or mental healing that they need to experience in their life, you know, addiction or or physical issues or uh, mental health issues or whatever it is to leverage the resources God has given you to walk with people through loving others and having healthy relationships, saving marriages and so on, to leverage the resources that God has given you to love the entire world through things like our anchor causes and and child sponsorship and child survival programs and all the ways in which our money can make a difference in other places in the world, To, to use what we have to be an agent of the healing love of God in the world, to use what we have to be Jesus to a world in pain. Those are the three things that we can do. We can spend it on ourselves, we can save it for ourselves, or we can use it to love God and to love people. Now here's the thing about money, is that uh, you only have a certain amount of it, as many of us are painfully aware. And so as one of those categories begins to expand, the other categories necessarily have to shrink, which is to say this. 
You start spending more money on yourself and that category begins to grow. The savings and the using, the generosity part begins to shrink. Which is exactly why Jesus would say to us that we need to live according to the principle of contentment. Because really one of the only reasons that that spend category is going to continue to grow is because we're discontented with the lifestyle we're currently living, with what God has currently provided for us. In discontentment, we start eyeballing the new iPad or we start eyeballing a new car, we start eyeballing a new home or we start eyeballing a swimming pool or whatever the case may be, we start eyeballing something else because we think that that something else is going to make us more happy than we are right now. We're not content with what God has provided and so we start spending in order to acquire more and as that spending category grows, our ability to leverage what we have to be Jesus to a world in need begins to shrink. We need to live according to the principle of contentment. We need to live according to the principle of dependence, which I think has largely to do with the save category. See, Chris and I, we're not big spenders. We don't go shopping a lot. We, don't, um, we just don't buy stuff. That's just not our thing. Um, Honestly, most of the time, in order for us to buy something, it has to be pretty much on a deep discount or somebody else has to have owned it first. But we are massive savers. Massive savers. We just know that our 12-year-old van and our 8-year-old car are eventually going to die, so we save for that. We know that uh, um, our house, which is older, is going to need to be repaired, so we save for that. We know that one day we're not going to get a paycheck, and so we save for that. We believe in education for Krista, for me, for the girls, so we save for that. We believe that we ought to have an emergency fund, so we save for that. And we save, and for me, this is where my emotional tension grows, is that we, we save um, trying to be responsible. And um, sometimes for me, I wonder where the line is between saving and believing that God may not provide what we need. At what point does saving become not depending on God anymore. And I battle with that. And I, and I don't know how to resolve that all the time. It's just an ongoing conversation. And maybe that's the best way for it to be. Is an ongoing conversation that we should just be uncomfortable with our finances all the time so that we're constantly reevaluating and we're constantly trying to make corrections so that we can do what I think is the goal. And that is shrink the spend category because we're living in contentment and shrink the save category because we're living independent so we can expand the use category and we can give more of what we have. We can leverage more of what God has given us in order to be Jesus to a world in pain. That I think is the goal. That's what I want to live for when it comes to the way that mission relates to my money. I want to get out of bed in the morning to live for the mission, not to live for money. I want to get out of bed in the morning so that I can leverage as much as I have in order to be Jesus to a world in pain, to be faithful to the calling that God has put on my life. Because one day I'm going to stand before him and have to answer for the choices that I made with what he gave me. A long time ago, I, as some of you, saw a movie called Schindler's List. Schindler's List was about a World War II German named Oskar Schindler who uh, discovered that Jews were being executed in the gas chambers uh, all around Germany and resolved to save as many Jewish lives as he could. And over the course of the war, Oskar Schindler saves about 1,100 Jewish lives. It's an incredible story. But there's this really poignant scene at the end of the movie 
where Schindler's standing in this open courtyard at one of his factories with all these people whose lives he saved standing all around him, and he begins to weep. And he looks at his friend and says, I could have done more. I could have done more. He says, look, this car, this car is lives that could have been saved. He pulls a ring off his finger. He says, look, this ring, this is gold. This is one or two lives that could have been saved. And he breaks down in sobs and collapses into the hug of his friend who reassures him that he had done all that he could. That's the kind of life I want to live. The kind of life that's unwilling to leave anything on the table so long as there are still lives that could be saved. And so I want us to pray right now. Close your eyes across all of our locations. I want us to take a moment to pray right now. But before I pray, I just want to ask you this question. In the quietness of your heart, think about those three categories. Spend and save and use. Which of those categories has been ballooning in your life lately? Which one continues to expand and grow? Which one dominates the bulk of your thinking and working and energy and imagination, which one consumes most of your time and your effort and your interest? Spend or save or use? And what would it take for us to learn to shrink the spend category out of a spirit of contentment and to shrink the save category in a spirit of dependence so that we can expand the use category in the spirit of the kind of generosity that wants to be Jesus to a world in pain. Heavenly Father, we live in a world where money tugs at our hearts all the time where it is a constant distraction, a constant temptation. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us the courage and the strength to choose a life of mission instead of choosing a life of money. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to make the kind of financial choices you would want us to make in order to maximize our opportunity to be Jesus to a world in pain. I pray, Father, that we would never judge anyone in our community uh, for the choices that they make about their finances. I pray that we would just turn a scouring eye into our own heart and into our own motives to examine our own lives and make our own choices but how we want to live for you. Give us the courage of contentment and the courage of dependence so that as much as it depends on us, we can leverage everything that we have to bring your healing love to the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.